0: November 2022 turned out to be a pretty awesome month for me. I found out we'd closed the deal on the option for Cinderella Boy, and then just a few days later my partner and I got engaged! Woo! We love each other's families. My family loves him. I think his family loves me. I do my best. But sometimes that image still comes to mind, you know? The trope of the overprotective father with a shotgun pointed at whoever his daughter's dating. Like, what do you mean you met him online? Is he trustworthy? Are you sure he's human? I'd probably be a neurotic parent myself. Granted, I don't have kids, just cats, but when I'm out of town, the list of people I trust to take care of them is short. And these are people I've known for years and love and trust, and that's just when I'm gone for a week or two. Maybe I could trust a stranger, I don't know, but suddenly I find myself on the other side of that. Cinderella Boy is one of Christina Meister's babies. Any artistic endeavor you put that much of your life, your heart, and your soul into is like a child to you, and it's her representative's job to be the dad with a shotgun, Who are you? You say you can write musicals? You say I'm supposed to trust you with this novel? How do I know you're gonna have him back by nine o'clock? So you bet I took my time putting together a proposal for them. Six months, in fact. I wrote out the first scene, and put together an outline of the musical as I envisioned it, along with where I thought songs should go, and in many cases, an idea for the title of the hook. The most exciting part, though, was writing the first two songs so I could give them an idea of what I wanted to do musically. And those first few months writing the first material for a new musical were so exciting. But any writer will tell you the most terrifying thing in the world is that blinking cursor. One of my grad school faculty said that everyone in the musical theatre business has something else to build on, a foundation to start with, except for writers. We're the only ones who are faced with the blank page. This time around, though, that wasn't exactly the case, because I had Christina's novel to start from. And let me tell you, it is so much fun to translate someone else's writing into song. Welcome to the second episode of Before the Ball, the story of the creation of a brand new musical. I'm Ryan Kerr, he him, and I am the book writer slash lyricist slash composer slash crazy person who said, yeah, let me send you a proposal of how I want to turn this novel into a musical. I've gotten so much warm and encouraging feedback from all sides on episode one, so a huge thanks to everyone who's reached out to tell me I have a really soothing radio voice but apparently talk too fast. Uh, Shout out especially to my cousin Jess, who decided to listen to it while she was getting a filling until she got to the part about me being obsessed with Harry Draco fanfiction as a teenager and started laughing so hard her dentist made her turn it off. I'm sorry about the delay in getting this episode out. I had one last piece of infrastructure that I wanted to get in place before releasing this, and that took some time to finalize. This is also just a long episode. Normally I'll only be talking about one entire song, or little pieces of a few songs in progress, but this episode I'm talking about two whole songs, and that just takes longer to organize my thoughts and edit the recording. The biggest reason for the delay, though, is that this is the fifth time, I think, that I've re-recorded this episode, because there's a particular balance that I've been struggling to find. I don't know if I've succeeded this time, but it's taken long enough at this point that I just need to get the episode out and move on. I'll try to assuage my concerns by reminding myself that what is a podcast, really, but someone's personal little soapbox? I know I said last episode what this podcast is supposed to be. I know what you're here for. The thing is, it's not a coincidence that the novel I chose to adapt is a non-binary love story. Everything I said about loving this story is true. I wouldn't spend this much time and energy on something I didn't love this much. But don't get me wrong, every aspect of deciding to move forward with this specific book was deliberate and calculated. For those of you who are less familiar with queer history, it was trans women who spearheaded the fight for gay rights 50 years ago, rather thanklessly at the time, I might add. And then when the AIDS crisis hit, it was lesbians who took care of us when nobody else would touch us. The way I see it, that puts gay men pretty solidly on the debit side of the ledger. Now I'm not a lawyer who can fight some of the horrifying anti-trans legislation taking root around the country, or a doctor who can provide life-saving care to trans people. I know, I know, bad Asian son. I'm just a musical theater writer. What I can do, I hope, is make people like you care and keep this at the top of your mind so that when you have a chance to act, you might be more motivated to do so. What I'm trying to stay away from getting too preachy about is some news that just came out recently, three months before Tony nominations are announced. Justin David Sullivan is a non-binary actor who made their Broadway debut playing a non-binary role in the new Jukebox musical, And Juliet*. Justin uses he, she, and they pronouns. I'm using they because I don't know them personally to know which pronouns they prefer when, and in those instances, I usually try to use someone's least gendered pronouns. Justin was told they had to choose either the male or the female category if they wanted to be eligible for a Tony nomination, so ultimately, they declined to be nominated. It turns out it's not the first time someone's done this, but it is the first time someone's done it as visibly as Justin has. For them to have originated a role in a new musical on Broadway is the dream. And the Tony Awards are, in so many ways, the ultimate recognition of accomplishment in our industry. And so for Justin to have run the race and reached this milestone, only to be told there's no category for recognizing people like you, is heartbreaking. And yeah, this is just the tip of the iceberg. There's a lot of really scary stuff going on right now for trans people. If you're not familiar with what's going on, please go to the ACLU's website where they're keeping tabs on all of it. I know exclusion in arts awards sounds like first-world problems compared to some of the very real, very life-threatening danger that trans people are facing. But that doesn't mean we should just be ignoring what's happening to actors like Justin. It's a whole package. We can't fight the problem in one place while we're ignoring it in another. In Cinderella Boy, Declan is a non-binary character who will be played, if not by a non-binary actor, then at least by a trans actor. If I'm fortunate enough at some point that Cinderella Boy is being considered for the Tonys, I really need my Declan not to be put in Justin's position. The good news is, the organizations behind the Tony Awards have put out statements saying they're working on it for future seasons, but it's too late to restructure the categories for this year. Cinderella Boy has years, plenty of time, before this show will be facing those issues. Fingers crossed it gets that far at all. But Justin David Sullivan does not. So this is me adding my voice to the mix in hopes that the Tony Awards evolve a more inclusive structure next year and that Justin gets cast in a new musical next season so they can pick up the Tony nomination they should have been eligible for this year. While the Broadway League and the American Theatre Wing are hopefully setting those gears in motion, I am forging ahead with Cinderella Boy. Like I said, the proposal I sent to Christina's reps consisted of a few pieces. The character list was easy. The outline was a little harder. The biggest problem I know I'm going to have over the course of this whole process is going to be concision. The way Christina wrote Cinderella Boy, each chapter is an extremely well-structured, self-contained scene. When I say it translates to the stage so easily, that's a huge part of what I mean. Each chapter is a cleanly constructed scene. The book is split into two perfect halves that translate into two acts. The problem is, there are 31 chapters, plus an epilogue, and 31 scenes in two and a half hours if I'm being lenient with myself. Just mathematically, that means on average, each scene has to come in under five minutes. Doable, right? But this is a musical. If I'm writing normal-length songs, three or four minutes, that means if I end up with a long song or more than one song in a scene, I'm getting closer and closer to trouble. Remember I said Poppy, the musical my friends and I wrote in high school, clocked in at four and a half hours? Yeah, I'm sweating. But I said, you know what? This is just the proposal. I haven't even started writing the entire piece yet. And the rule I at least try to keep myself to is write first, revise later, meaning let me get out a whole draft, no matter how bad it might be, before I start worrying about trimming it down. At some point, yes, I am going to have a 4- hour first draft, and you can bet there will be an entire episode here where I'm freaking out about how to trim it down to a reasonable running time. But for now I said let me just write, or rather translate. That's sort of how I think of the process. In a musical on the most basic level, you have dialogue, where the characters are having conversations or conveying information, song, which serves many purposes but is essentially elevated communication, whether that means we're pausing to dive deeper into a single moment or making some discourse really important or something else, An action, or rather business is the theatrical term, where you see them doing stuff. In a novel, on the other hand, you have dialogue and then just prose and that prose encompasses both the inner monologues of whoever's inner monologues you have access to, and what they're doing. So I started by literally copying and pasting the body of the first chapter into Word, and then just reformatting it to look like a script. I was able to lift most of the dialogue as is, maybe some minor changes to make it sound more natural in actors' mouths, which left me with all the prose. Christina wouldn't have included it if it weren't important. There's not a whole lot of excess to trim off of this book, The trick is to identify why each piece is important and how to translate that to the stage. Memories are a hard one, for example. Is this memory a big enough character trait, like a touchstone they keep coming back to? Does it deserve to be explained in its own song or something? Or is it something that can be referenced obliquely in dialogue piece by piece over the course of the show? Maybe this is a recurring dream or nightmare that might deserve to be told in dance. I'll show you some examples of how I dealt with some of those over the course of the podcast. That gets back to the really big structural question I posed last episode, though. What are the songs? What purpose does song serve in this piece? What gets translated to song? What gets translated to dance? What stays dialogue? What can just stay a stage direction to make sure it's something the audience sees and can draw their own inferences from? And what can actually be communicated through the set or costume or lighting and so on? That last one is really hard. And if you're a writer, one of the best things you can do is make friends with designers and run your drafts by them. My friend Chris is a genius, and his attention to detail and how lighting contributes to storytelling is insane. In one play he designed, I remember the action all took place in the living room, but on the back wall of the hallway in the background, you could see that kind of jumbled, scattered, refracted light pattern that only comes from having a chandelier in the next room, like their dining room is just around the corner out of sight. It's never referenced at all. The next room, the chandelier, none of it. Nobody points to it, says anything about it, reacts to it, anything. But it brings you into their home, immerses you in their world, and tells you more about the people who live there, which fleshes everything out and makes the entire thing feel more real. And it's tiny things like that that you clock and log in your subconscious that have the ability to do sometimes shocking amounts of legwork in terms of storytelling. Anyway, that's all stuff I'm trying to keep simmering on the back burner while I'm trying to spot songs. The first one was actually really easy. Declan dressing up in Delia's room while she's out shopping. It introduces us to the protagonist right away, telling us both who he is and what he wants. I wanted to show this transformation on stage from awkward teenage boy to the awkward teenage girl. Look, you spend your whole life practicing performing one gender and then you switch it up. Of course, there's going to be a learning curve. But Christina made my job super easy because throughout the scene, she gives us Declan's inner monologue. I mean, heck, she gives us an obvious hook too a moment. But this is so crucial, knowing not just what a character is thinking, but also what they're physically doing for each line of the song. This is something that Stephen Sondheim was so good at in every single song. It may not be what the actor and director ultimately decide to do, but he saw in his mind what the character is doing each word of each line when he wrote it. What you don't want is an actor wondering what to do with their body on stage because there's nothing baked into the song to actually act. Now, this is a good point to pause and reread chapter one if it's not fresh in your mind. Again, please, please, please go buy the ebook or audiobook or a hard copy so you can enjoy the story the way it was meant to be enjoyed and so you can follow my train of thought. Also, I found out I kinda lied last time. Cinderella Boy is still up on tapas, but it's only kind of free. The first two chapters are free, but the rest you have to buy with ink, which is their in-app currency. There are a bunch of ways to get free ink, but if you're half as impatient as I am, you'll probably just buy the ink, at which point you might as well just buy the ebook. So technically free at the loss of instant gratification. Writing the lyric was easy-ish, because at that point it's kind of like doing a puzzle for me. Where are they going? What's the point A that they start from, and what's the arc that defines how they get to the point B that they end at? How do I then restructure this into verses and choruses to get them there? This song has an extra job to do, since it's also the opening number. It has to take the audience by the hand and guide them into the story. So verse 1 isn't going to dive right in the way other songs might. It has to be a little like a thesis statement when you're writing an essay. But from there, the shape of the song is pretty clear. Dex sneaking into Delia's room and resettling into his secret world of femininity, stripping away the masculine image he's expected to wear, revealing the raw insecurity underneath, and then exploring this side of himself he feels he's not allowed to explore openly, bringing his alter ego to life. Once I have that overall shape... How do I rejigger the text so that it rhymes, so that it scans, scansion being the pattern of syllables and accents in each line? Once I have it all sectioned off, I take each chunk and turn it into a verse or chorus. To give you an idea of how it goes, here are a couple of Christina's paragraphs, out of order, from pages 4 and 5. The old armor was a wrinkled husk on the bed. The shoe's straps cut into his skin but made him feel more powerful than ever before. He tipped the mirror and turned in profile. So strange to think that the real person had to be drawn out like poison, bled out from inside. Who that real person was, he didn't know, but he knew he was a little closer to them. He pulled his shirt over his head and caught sight of a skinny torso in her dressing mirror. If he didn't look, it would be okay, he told himself. Away went the jeans. And here's how that translated into lyrics.
1: From somewhere inside, first I peel this shell away. All of my protection, every secret on display. Every cold reflection staring back as if to say, I know who you are, I know how you've lied, but nothing so cut and dry.
0: So, yeah, there's plenty more I added, and at some point, this song desperately needs to have, like, a minute chopped off, probably a whole verse and chorus. But those two pages of Christina's were a goldmine for me. I took a little more liberty with the bridge. Dex whispering Carter's name and fantasizing about him is great and all, but up until this point, he's only mentioned as Delia's ex. X. At the bottom of page two, however, there's a big paragraph of exposition that goes into what sounds like the first time he and Carter ever really spent time together. Declan pictured Carter as he had been that snowy day over Christmas break. Never had an ugly sweater been so sexy. He'd had his perfect hair, his perfect face, his perfect blue eyes, and without a second thought, he'd folded up his perfect long legs and played Minecraft beside Declan, their arms brushing at least 10 times. And then there are a couple more paragraphs of angsty daydreaming in the middle of page five. Carter Adenson, he whispered. The sort of boy put on this earth to torment, and he had unwittingly tormented Declan for two years. Kissing his sister on the porch, cuddling her on the couch, sharing his private jokes in the hollow of her ear. One day when he could escape, Declan would do it right. He would be himself at last, not who they always thought he was. Maybe then he could walk up to Carter or some blessed angel like him and buy him a drink. It gets better. So I combined all of that into the bridge. What is- It's a pretty long bridge, which is something I actually have a problem with pretty regularly. Quick lesson on song forms. The two biggest song forms used in musical theatre are verse-chorus and AABA. AABA is the more traditional and widely used of the two, and it's called what it is because that's how the stanzas are structured and labeled. The form goes, here's an idea, there's your A. Here's an intensification or development of the idea, second A. On the other hand, here's a contrasting thought, your B. But then here's the return to the original idea that's now more meaningful or otherwise somehow transformed by having explored the contrasting idea. Your last A. Verse chorus, on the other hand, is used in just about every pop song nowadays, so it's probably more familiar to most people. When used in theater, the idea is that, for whatever dramatic reason, you keep coming back to the same idea, which is the chorus. Maybe each verse presents a new angle that makes the chorus stronger every time, Or maybe the verses try to head off in some other direction, but the chorus keeps pulling you back every time in a sort of Promethean-Sisyphean kind of way. If there's a bridge, it's not supposed to be a contrasting idea. It's supposed to be an intensification of the chorus that then accelerates you back into it. I definitely got scolded a couple times in grad school because my bridges were behaving more like B sections, meaning the faculty argued I was showing you the tail side of the coin when what I'm supposed to be doing is telling you more and more about the head side. Pedantic, yes, but hey, that's what grad school's for. My thing is, the bridge is a musical departure, a new musical idea, which means I think it totally warrants a new thought. Otherwise, why not just make it another chorus with different lyrics? So I usually use my bridges as another angle that's like, okay, none of that convinced you why the chorus matters so much? Then this has to. For this song, Declan is staying, well, in the moment. It's all about how he feels in the present, Which is important, but the whole reason he cares about exploring who he is in this moment is so he knows who he is in every future moment. He knows what he wants from life and from a partner. He wants to fall in love and to do it as his truest self, and that's the moment he's actually preparing for in this song. But that's a lot to convey, and so the bridge is longer than I'd like, but whatever, first draft. That hook, a moment, was also just handed to me on a platter by Christina. It's repeated multiple times, not just here, but also in the next chapter on page 16 when Carter first sees Layla. And that's not even counting the biggest moment of all, the first kiss. So, lyrics, cool. Now, the music. What does this show sound like? If you know the story, when I say musical, I'm not talking about showgirls and kicklines. So now that I say that, Dex would probably slay in sequins and ostrich feathers. Obviously, I'm thinking something a little more appropriate to the story, something much more contemporary. It's interesting because back in the day, musical theater was popular music. What really changed that was the explosion of rock and roll in the 60s. My friend Christy Bauer is one of the smartest and most talented musical theater writers I've ever met, much less had the privilege to call a friend. she actually has a whole essay on how the British invasion permanently changed America's relationship to musical theater. And ever since, pop and musical theater have just diverged. Yes, there are plenty of pop and rock musicals, but very few of them have songs that you feel like you'd actually hear on the radio. That's where I went for inspiration. I imagine Dex's music as sort of wispy and understated, sort of ethereal, and super queer without being, like, trashy? The artist who immediately came to mind was Troy Sivan, especially his first album, Blue Neighborhood. So I thought, okay, let's start with Troy Sivan, see how far that gets us. Turns out, it actually got me pretty far. That's where the syncopated melodies and especially the arrangement come from. There's actually a lot of dubstep influence in Troy's music in that first album, which just is a sound palette I haven't played with a lot, so I went in more of an r and derived pop direction instead. Another thing I realized was that, as much as Declan is becoming a truer version of himself when he becomes Layla, there's still a lot of masking going on. Layla is simultaneously the core and the surface, without connecting anywhere in the middle. So I wanted to do something musically to show that disconnect and that opaqueness. I decided to write a song entirely in what you can call jazz chords, using lots of harmonic extensions. So instead of just a C7 chord, he'll have ac 7 flat 9 flat 13 He's not musically direct, at least not until much later in the story. I intend for his musical language to change and get more straightforward as Declan and Layla get closer and closer to becoming a single truth. But at this point, he's absolutely hiding half of himself under the other at any given moment, and neither is the whole truth. I also had to decide what voice type to write Declan for the entire plot of the story hinges on Declan being both believably male and believably female. And here's the second part of the episode where I have to hold myself back from getting too preachy. The majority of the cisgender world expects that they should be able to look at someone, how they're groomed, how they're dressed, and know what pronouns you use, what's in your pants, and so on. Boys with long hair and girls with short hair know how big a deal some people like to make it when you don't conform to that expectation. Those same people have even bigger issues when transmasculine people aren't masculine enough, or transfeminine people aren't feminine enough, or when non-binary people don't feel beholden to a traditional expression of gender at all. And those issues frequently escalate to physical violence. So, I don't want to write a musical perpetuating the problematic expectation on the part of cisgender people that quote-unquote passing or being cis-assumed is or should be the goal for trans and non-binary people. However, the fact is Declan's story is not set in some ideal David Levithan world where these things don't matter. It's set in a world a bit closer to the real here and now. That said, I do have the theatrical concept we call suspension of disbelief on my side. Suspension of disbelief is basically, look, this is a musical. I know most people usually don't spontaneously burst into song. Just go with it. In this case, I'm telling you they see Declan as a boy and Layla as a girl. Just go with it. And to top it off, non-binary actors can have literally any voice type, from soprano down to bass. In order to make Declan's role performable for as many trans and non-binary actors as possible, no matter what their voice may have done during puberty, I decided to do two things. First, I'm writing Declan in the overlap between a low alto and a high tenor's range. That way, hopefully half of the casting pool can sing it in the exact same octave as written. But second, for any songs Dex sings with anyone else, where transposing the entire song will then throw it out of the other person's range, I'm going to write an alternate vocal line, taking a different harmony, that basses can take down the octave and sopranos can sing up the octave. That way, if I write Carter, for example, as a baritone baritener, a medium-low vocal range, it literally doesn't matter what voice type the actor playing Dex is, their harmonies are going to be snug and sweet and crafted with intention. So that takes care of the couple. Now, Delia... I really don't even know anymore how I landed where I did on Delia. She's a popular high school girl who, as the fairy godmother character, is Dex's biggest ally. She's sweet and compassionate, smart, not afraid to stand up for who and what she believes in. I marinated in all of that for a while and came out with Ariana Grande. It also probably doesn't help that, like, all those jokes and memes about gay guys when Into You comes on in the club, yeah, I'm those gay guys. Her song was both harder and easier to write than Dex's, and for the same reason. Her song was actually born out of a pragmatic need after she shoves Dex into the shower so he can scrub off his overzealous makeup attempt. This is all Christina gives me. Away she went. He had 10 minutes of scrubbing to himself before she opened the door and stuck her head inside. And then he's out of the shower, so I was like, well, I guess I need a song there to pass some time. And again it seemed perfect to marry the physical activity of her going around her room putting everything together for Dex with whatever's going on in her head. As I just said though, Christina doesn't give me a whole lot of raw material to work with. Not directly anyway. There is the part on page six where she's trying to figure out what to say to Dex to calm him down. She finally asks him why he's so upset all the time. I thought you were like on drugs or something, I thought you hated me and I couldn't figure out what I'd done. Sniffling and shifting, Declan surfaced. He couldn't yet look at her, but she had always been his second mother when the real one stopped understanding him. That is the seed that the song grew from. Yes, she seems to be taking everything in stride, jumping straight into crisis management mode and helping him become Layla. And as Declan surmises, a huge part of that is just her personality. But I think there's a much bigger why in this scene that Christina hints at right there, even though she largely keeps the camera focused on Dex here. They used to be close. Really close. And at some point it stopped, and she had no idea why. Now that she does, she doesn't understand why he felt like he couldn't tell her. Even if they stopped being close, I don't believe she ever loved him any less. I just think she didn't understand how he needed to be loved because he was afraid to tell her. In addition to what's written right there in chapter 1, pieces of it are also told from Carter's perspective later, on pages 196 and 197. I know that if I loved someone that much, like my little brother, and I do, If I were in her shoes, I would be freaking out. Not about him coming out to me, but about, I love you, period. How did I let you down so badly that you felt like you couldn't trust me? How did we let it get to the point that you believed something like this could come between us? How did we let ourselves drift apart anyway? And I don't think Delia is unaware of the astronomical statistics on self-harm and mortality among transgender youth. And so that's exactly where I started with the lyric. I didn't have a puzzle to assemble here from an extensive inner monologue Christina left me, so I started with that feeling of love and panic and wrote her inner monologue, which I was then able to cut up and reassemble into a lyric. The music, oh my god, was so much fun to write, and I'm really looking forward to having some dance party-style concerts of this show once I have some more written. The very first investment I made in this project, before I paid any money for the rights, was to record some good solid demos of these songs, I figured if this is how I'm representing my work to Christina and her people, I want to put my most polished, best foot forward. That said, this is before I've paid any money for the rights. I knew Christina and her reps could listen to these demos, hate what I'm doing, and decide, no, we'd rather not give you the rights. In which case, any money I'd invested up to that point would just be lost. So I was really trying to be conscious of where I was putting my money, as long as things were still well behind the starting line. I decided the best use of my investment would be in talent. I actually knew from the very first instant I first envisioned Delia's character and musical style who I wanted to ask to do demos, a friend of mine I met at NYU named Megan Reyes. One of my first memories of her was actually when I was engineering a recording for some other friends of mine, and the way she was singing some phrase sounded like Katy Perry. And so I told her so, and have you seen those clips of Ariana Grande on Jimmy Kimmel and SNL where she can just drop into a perfect vocal impression of any diva doing any song. Yeah, Megan started doing that. I still have the vocal tracks, I think, somewhere wherever they've been gathering dust for the last 10 years. She's since moved back to the West Coast, but hey, we all needed something to do during lockdown, right? And she happened to have a recording set up at home, so perfect. I was drawing a blank on decks, though. Strictly for the purposes of an audio recording with no physical or visual element to represent the actor or the acting, I wanted someone whose singing voice sounds both masculine and feminine. Someone sort of vocally non-binary, I guess. I have plenty of trans and non-binary friends, but of the ones who do theater, most of them fall into various backstage roles rather than being singers. So I put out some feelers, and of the mountains of talent people recommended to me, one person really stood out, an actor named Jake Workman. Check out their videos on YouTube and you'll see why. Their Halo and The Wizard and I are just... Who are you? And that's the thing about Jake and Megan both. It turned out I'd asked exactly the right people. I got my bachelor's degree in music composition. I've been music director for probably a dozen productions. I've worked with tons of actors and singers. I know how to write for the voice. It's not immediately obvious to non-composers sometimes that if I'm writing a melody for flute, for violin, for some other solo instrument or for voice, I'm going to do completely different things. There are things each is particularly good at. And then there are some things that are more difficult on one than on another. Part of the craft is studying what singers can and can't do, and especially what they're good at, versus what's possible but asking a lot of them. So I felt good about the sheet music I sent to Jake and Megan. I knew I wasn't asking them to do anything impossible, but I was well aware that what I was asking was difficult. There were some things that mattered to me, like in a moment the syncopated melody really has to lock into the groove, versus what didn't. In Back to Us, I've got some rhythms that can be difficult to sing, so I invited Megan to interpret those as loosely as she wanted. But of course, when you think of hard-to-sing music, the first thing that probably comes to mind is high. And these songs not only go high, but they also have really, really wide vocal ranges. Both are a step shy of a full two-octave compass. For the non-musicians listening, that is really demanding for one song, especially considering these are the first two songs of a full-length musical. And so I told them both, hey, if you need me to transpose anything or rewrite anything, let me know. But they both just took it and said, nope, I'm good taught themselves, worked out all the weird stuff on their own, and sent me their vocal tracks, both of which definitely made me cry, because (sighs) it's kind of hard to explain to people who aren't writers, too. Like, I don't know, sure, I think I write some cool songs sometimes, but I'm not always convinced that I'm doing anything special. Until you put it into the hands of a really skilled performer who knows how to milk every drop of nuanced expression out of it, and then turns around and shows you what that thing you wrote can actually be. Needless to say, I was extremely happy with the way the demos turned out, and I am so, so happy that Jake and Megan have agreed to let me share the demos online. That's the last piece of infrastructure I said I was waiting for. The way streaming services work, I can't keep adding to a single album, everything has to go up as a new single. So to make it easier for everybody, I'm collecting all the songs in a Spotify playlist, which you can get to from the link on cinderellaboy.com, or just go to directly at cinderellaboy.com slash playlist songs are also up on major streaming services, but I'm only maintaining the playlist on Spotify for now. I'd love to know what you all think. And also, like I said last episode, if you like the music, and I really hope you do, I'm also posting backing tracks you can download for free. Share videos of yourself singing the songs to Cinderella Boy Musical and I'll share them on the feed. If you want the sheet music to play the songs yourself, slide into those DMs or contact me via the links on the site. Again that's cinderellaboy.com and Musical on Instagram. I am getting the TikTok back up. I set it up ages ago to reserve the name, but then I forgot the password and I never linked it to anything so I can't recover the account until I actually remember what I thought a good password would be. I will keep you posted. (laughs) Last but definitely not least, Jake and Megan are insanely talented, and I truly believe a huge part of what allowed me to secure the rights to adapt Cinderella Boy was how incredible they made my work sound. This demo is the only thing of Jake's on Spotify right now, but they have a ton of stuff up on their YouTube channel. I mentioned they're The Wizard and I. Jake's been in Chicago on Broadway, but can you imagine a non-binary alphabet? How's that for a green metaphor? That's J-A-Y-K-E, not the country singer without the Y. They also just launched a new podcast called Oh My Pod, You Guys, which, yes, it's as wonderful as it sounds. And also check out Megan Reyes, M-E-A-G-A-N, on YouTube and Spotify. She describes herself primarily as a jazz singer, but you can tell she can do literally anything. Among other things, she has a beautiful EP called Origins, and my personal favorite, a jazzy cover of Beyoncé's EXO that I play on repeat way too much. Uh, Also, side note, if you're searching for my stuff by name, there are a bunch of Ryan Kurz out there, a lot of whom I'm actually friends with. That's why I'm the one with the H. The one behind the podcast Nocturnal Transmissions. I know. Try going to a gay bar with him. Is the one I call Canadian Ryan Kerr, one of two in Toronto, actually? Actually, both really. Can. The one who sings Lens Flare and Daydreams, I think, is in New Jersey, but he's resisted all of my attempts to become Ryan Kerr friends for some reason. I don't know. Maybe he's normal or something. As for me, I took the demos, the scene, and the other documents I prepared, and sent them off to the agents to see if they wanted to grant me the rights to make the adaptation. And that part of the process, from delivering my proposal to signing the option agreement, took a year and a half, and I will tell you all about it in the next episode of Before the Ball. Thanks for listening.